your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 9, and as we do that, let me thank you for the privilege of being here, privilege of being uh, home in some respects, privilege of seeing some friends, uh, including some old friends, <laughs> and the privilege of opening God's Word together. It's, uh, it truly is a privilege. When, I, when Brian asked me if I would come fill in because all the... Uh, all your pastors were going to be gone. I actually had a plan to uh, talk to you about what the Bible says about sheep without a shepherd. <laughs> Seriously, that was going to be the that was going to be the topic. Uh, what do we do as as God's sheep when we don't have our shepherd? But I got arrested a couple of weeks ago, and that changed everything. <laughs> Not arrested by a law enforcement officer, but arrested by God, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. I got arrested as I was preparing a Bible study for uh, a group at Miracle Farms. Miracle Farms is a, um, is a ranch next door to us in Brenham uh, for uh, boys that are at risk to some degree for one reason or another, and it's the, it's the home where Dylan Seal lives uh, today. You guys know Dylan. A lot of you do. Um, I see Dylan's mom here. Dylan, uh, I think Miracle Farm has been good for Dylan, but I think more importantly, Dylan has been really good for the boys at Miracle Farm. He's been a real blessing to those boys, so you should take uh, comfort in that. Uh, he's in a good place, and he's doing good work. But let's, uh, let's pray before we get started, and then we'll read God's Word. Father, as I... Uh, as we come to open your Word today, we realize we do uh, so fearfully because we know the uh, the criticality of this as as the uh, leader I understand the responsibility you've given me to try uh, through your Holy Spirit to represent your word accurately and Father as all of us as we study your word we realize it's not only a privilege but it's also a responsibility to uh, not sit in judgment of your word but allow it your word to judge us and so, Father, as we do that, we ask for your Holy Spirit to enable us to learn what you want us to learn this morning because we trust there's something there for us this very hour. Father, we pray it in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's just read, if you would, with me, Second uh, Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to read from the uh, English, the ESV translation today. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, <coughs> I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. 
and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should so regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall, shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the table at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. So let me start this with a confession because as we... as the I was preparing for the Miracle Form Bible study. We're studying the life of David. And my plan, as we had just finished chapters 7 and 8, was to skip chapter 9. Because it was boring. There wasn't a lot of action. And after all, the boys wouldn't enjoy it. And so I think I even told Pam I'm going to skip chapter 9. And to her credit, she didn't say anything. I was going to go right to chapter 11, which is the story of David and Bathsheba. I'm serious. After all, the story of David and Bathsheba had uh, sexual sin and intrigue and murder and lying and twist in the plot. The boys would love it. The boys would love it. And so as I sat down in my study to prepare to teach uh, chapter 11... God arrested me. Because in preparation, <clears throat> excuse me, in preparation for chapter 11, I went back and read chapter 9. And started asking myself, why, it wasn't the boys, why did I find chapter 9 boring? Why was chapter 9 a story of unamazing grace to me? And God arrested me. And so you know what we did? We studied chapter 9 at the Miracle Forms Bible Study. And I thought I would share it with you today. But let me just ask you, no show of hands, but I don't know, maybe you, some of you had a similar feeling. When I asked you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9, of all the places in the entire Bible David could go to today, what are we doing in 2 Samuel chapter 9? And admittedly, it's a little bit risky to talk to this group about grace because this is Grace Bible Church, and after all, this church has been steeped in the doctrines of grace since your very beginning. But God brought back my amazement of his grace. And maybe he'll do the same for us today. So if you're willing, let's study Second Samuel chapter 9 today. put it in context just a little bit you're familiar with the story of David of course he was a shepherd uh, 
insignificant in the eyes of his father, insignificant in the eyes of his brothers, but selected specifically by God as a young boy to be the future king of Israel. Called by God a man after his own heart. And soon thereafter, he did battle with Goliath. You remember the story? Goliath was literally a giant, but he was dwarfed by the faith of this young boy. Followed that came many military victories for David, and it soon became clear to King Saul and his son Jonathan that David was going to be the next king. Not Jonathan, but David was going to be the next king, but David didn't become king right away. What followed was 10, maybe 15 years of life as a fugitive as King Saul tried to kill David. But eventually, Saul dies. David becomes king of Judah first at the, at the age of 30. And about eight years later, becomes the king of all of Israel. David was a really good king, a good warrior. He defeats all the enemies surrounding Israel, establishes Jerusalem as his new capital, brings the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. It took him two tries, but he finally got the Ark back in Jerusalem, made plans to build a temple that his son Solomon would eventually complete, and receives a promise from God that his ancestors would rule over Israel forever, the Davidic covenant. And at this point, it's at this point that 2 Samuel chapter 9 takes place. At this time, David's probably 45 or 50 years old. He's been king for at least 20 years, 20, 25 years. And so let's read again what happens in the first five verses of chapter 9. So at this point in David's life, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. So what is David doing here? If you want to flip back with me to 1 Samuel, something took place about 20 or 25 years earlier. 1 Samuel chapter 20. And look at, let's start in verse 13 or thereabouts. This is Jonathan. This is 20 years back before David becomes king. Early in the period where David was a fugitive. Jonathan comes to David in verse, uh, let's just start in verse, halfway through verse 13. Jonathan says, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. What was Jonathan doing? He realized at this point that David was going to be king, 
And what normally happens when, in those days when a dynasty changed hands, all of the successors, all the potential successors to the throne were killed. And so Jonathan, knowing that David was going to be the next king, asked David, I want you to do two things for me. When you become king, don't kill me and don't kill my family. Show me kindness, show my family kindness, because I know you're going to be the next king. And it's not a foreign concept. In fact, we even see from the Bible instances where in 1 Kings and 2 Kings where some of the kings of Israel, when they took over the throne, actually murdered all the potential successors to the throne. We see it in 1 Kings 15 with King Basha, 1 Kings 16 with King Zimri, and 2 Kings 10, King Yehu. Just examples from the Bible. This was common practice in the day. So that was Jonathan's concern. Show me kindness when you become king, David. This is a promise David made at least 20 years before 2 Samuel chapter 9. And the other main character of this story is Mephibosheth. Flip, flip forward to 2 Samuel chapter 4, if you would. Or maybe, yeah, 2 Samuel 4. There's a... Uh, one verse that gives us a little bit more information about Mephibosheth. Chapter 4, verse 4 of Second Samuel. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Jonathan had a son, Mephibosheth. He was crippled in both feet, and he became crippled when he was five years old. Shortly after he learned that his father Saul, his grandfather Saul was killed at Jezreel, and his father Jonathan was killed in the same battle, and two of his uncles were killed in the same battle. As soon as this news came back to Mephibosheth's house, his nurse grabbed him and started running. Why? Out of fear that the same thing that happened to his grandfather and his father and his uncles was going to happen to him. So his nurse grabbed him and started running, had some kind of accident, crippled Mephibosheth at the age of five. A couple years later, Mephibosheth lost another uncle, Ishbosheth, who was the lone surviving son legitimate son of, uh, of Saul who had been propped up as king and was murdered actually by two men who thought they were doing King David a favor. So think of this young man Mephibosheth. At the age of seven, lost his grandfather, his father, and two uncles in battle, had an uncle murdered and became crippled. This is Mephibosheth at a very, very early age. Go back to chapter 9 if you want to. Look ahead at verse 12. In verse 12, there's just a little side note that said Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. So at this point, Mephibosheth is old enough to have his own son. So Mephibosheth here is, I don't know how old he is, 15, 20, 25 years old. 
he had come a long way since his five-year-old accident. But Mephibosheth was now old enough to have a son. And he was living, it says in verse 4, in Lodabar. Lodabar, we think, probably means no pasture. It's not really clear in the Hebrew language. But he's living in a barren place. It's in the far northeast corner of Israel. It's as far away as you can get from Jerusalem, the capital. That's where Mephibosheth was living. In a place that was so barren, the name was called Lodabar. Now, Mephibosheth's rightful property was in Benjamin. He was a Benjamite. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. His father, Jonathan, he were Benjamites. Benjamin is a territory right smack in the middle of Israel. It's, some of the, it's the Brenham of Israel. It's, a, it's this hill country of Israel that has fertile pastures and fertile farmland. This is where Mephibosheth's property was. And in Israel, property didn't change hands. It stayed in the family. That's where Saul's property was. But where was Mephibosheth living? He was hiding as far away as he could get in Lodabar. And then look at verse 3. I find it quite interesting. Verse 3 says, And the king said, Is there still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Interesting introduction of Mephibosheth, is it not? I don't know if it's purposeful or not, but Ziba didn't say, Well, there's Mephibosheth. He says, Well, there's still one, uh, but he's a cripple. So I don't know if there's significance in that introduction or not, but it seems like there might be uh, for me. Now, admit it, I'm a little bit biased against Ziba because I know from chapter uh, 27, I think it is, that um, he had no love. There was no love lost between Sheba and Mephibosheth. In fact, Sheba falsely accused Mephibosheth of treason a few years later and to take Mephibosheth's property away from him. So I don't trust Sheba. I think what Sheba was doing here as he introduced Mephibosheth was telling, Mephibosheth, telling David, yeah, but he's a cripple. Now, how were handicapped people viewed in those days? They were often viewed as they were handicapped because they were as the result of a curse of God. Now, why would I say that? Think of the story in John chapter 9 where the disciples come to Jesus, not the Pharisees who normally ask the stump the preacher questions. This was his own disciples who came to Jesus and said, this guy that was born blind, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Interesting question, is it not? I mean, they knew, they knew that there, he was blind because of sin. But it was kind of a, tough question because he was that way from birth so who who actually is responsible for this is it his parents or is it him and Jesus could have answered the question in a number of ways could he not he could have looked at his disciples and said well you guys are sinners and you can see but instead he looked at him and he said I'll tell you why this this man is born blind so that the work of God might be on display in his life. In other words, 
God created him blind for the same reason he created you the way he created you, so that God could be on display in his life. And those of us who've had the privilege to grow up around people with what we would consider to be handicaps know that they often are beacons of God's work, are they not? I mean, they're just beacons. You've had the privilege in this church to grow up around uh, Mr. Fontenot, Reagan. He's a beacon of God's work, is he not? But that's not what Ziba, I don't believe, was thinking about when he told King David, well, there's one, there's still one, but he's crippled in both feet. I think he was telling David, be careful about what you do here. Right? The guy's a cripple. It's, it's sad, is it not? So here was Mephibosheth. Powerless, displaced, probably often despised by the people he came in contact with. A potential enemy of David. Hiding in Lodabar for 15 or 20 years. So what do you think he thought when David's men showed up at his house and said, David wants you in Jerusalem? I'm a dead man. But he was powerless to resist, so he went. He goes and sees David in Jerusalem. So as we study the rest of the passage, I really just have two questions for you for the rest of this passage. One is, what did David do? And second, what did Mephibosheth do? Let's look first at what David did. We'll start in verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of David, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. We'll come back to that in just a minute. And David said, Mephibosheth. How cool is that? He called him by name. He treated him with respect. He said, Mephibosheth. So he treated him with respect first. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. He told him, don't fear. I don't consider you an enemy. I mean you no harm. He basically reconciled with Mephibosheth, did he not? Any, any kind of hostility that was sensed between them, David said, you have nothing to fear. Don't fear. I intend to do you kindness, not to harm you. So he gave him respect. He gave him reconciliation. And then the last half of chapter of verse 7, he says, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He gave him an inheritance. Now, I don't know where the land was, who had the land. I suspect it was probably Ziba, was probably living on the land, getting wealthy. Think back, when they started, when David asked, is there anybody from the house of Jonathan that I can show kindness to? They could find Ziba, couldn't they? They probably went to Benjamin and to Saul's property and got Ziba. But they didn't know where Mephibosheth was. He was hiding in Lodabar. So David says... The inheritance that was rightfully yours, Mephibosheth, is yours again. He gave him an inheritance. 
So we'll skip verse 8 for a minute. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you, Ziba, and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. So David not only gave Mephibosheth land and inheritance, he made him a rich man, did he not? He gave him a bunch of workers to work the land, make produce, provide it for Mephibosheth. So David treated him with respect. He gave him reconciliation. He gave him an inheritance, and he made him a rich man. And then the last half of verse 11 So Mephibosheth ate at the table, David's table, like one of the king's sons. He gave him royal treatment, didn't he? I just realized I could have a bunch of R's there if I wanted to. Respect, reconciliation, restoration of his inheritance, riches, and royal treatment. That's what, that's what David gave Mephibosheth. He treated him like a prince. And so what did Mephibosheth do? Well, it's pretty clear what he did not do, right? He didn't earn this overwhelming blessing from David, did he? He didn't ask for this overwhelming blessing from David. He was hiding. He didn't ask him for it. He didn't earn it. He didn't ask him. What did he do? It says in verse 6 and verse 8, he simply humbled himself and paid homage to the king from which he had been hiding for 20 years. So if you're Mephibosheth, would you be amazed at the grace of David? We would be, wouldn't we? Amazed might be too weak a word. We would be amazed at what just happened. As quickly as Mephibosheth became an orphan and a cripple, in one day he became a prince at the sheer will of King David. It's amazing, isn't it? It's an amazing story. So as I thought about how to apply that to our lives, to my life, to your lives, my first thought was let's put ourselves in the place of David. Let's use David as an example and figure out how we could show kindness to others. Now, in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 7, this word kindness is used. It's actually the Hebrew word hesed, H-E-S-E-D, and it's one of the Hebrew words for love that means an unfailing love, a loyal love, a covenant love, often used in the context of a covenant or a promise. That's what David wanted to show Mephibosheth, loyal, unfailing love. And so we could ask ourselves, how could we show said to those people we know who may be less fortunate than we are? It would be a good question to think about. We could ask ourselves, how could we show said to our spouse? After all, when we get married, it's a covenant, is it not? And if you think about the, uh, the vows we take, the, the traditional vows Pam and I took at our wedding, you know, we promise each other to love, to love each other, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health, 
till death do us part. Reagan's going to get married in a couple of weeks. In less than two weeks, he told me. Big day for him. He's going to take. He's going to make a covenant vow with his bride. Now, Pam gave me permission to tell you this because when we got married, we used those same traditional vows. And when we came to the part where Pam was repeating what the minister was leading her to say, she said, uh, you know, for better or worse, fine. And for richer or... And the word poor just didn't come out. And thankfully, the minister only waited a few seconds and he moved on, you know, in sickness or in health and that. She did fine on that, so... We laugh about that now, but I feel pretty good. I got six out of seven. You know, I got... <laughs> but you know what? I, I didn't for a moment doubt then, nor I doubt now, the unconditional, unfailing love of Pam. As I said. So I think we could look at it from David's perspective, and that would be okay, but I think we'd miss the main point. We'd miss the main point of the story. Because look back at verse 3. What does David tell Ziba he wants to do? And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? The Hesed of God. That's what this story is about. That's what David was trying to represent. David understood the Hesed of God, and he was wanting to represent the Hesed of God to Mephibosheth. So God's made some promises, has he not? I mean, going back to Genesis, he promised us that uh, the offspring of the woman was going to defeat Satan. He promised us a Savior. He promised us a Messiah. All through the Old Testament, he made promises. And God is a God of unfailing, loyal covenant love is he not so we could go anywhere in the new testament literally we could pick any book in the new testament and we could learn about god's has said his unfailing love we call it grace sometimes don't we we could go anywhere but what i want to stick with is the book of ephesians so if you want to flip over to the book of ephesians let me let's just look at what it says about god's has said for us Let's read the first uh, 14 verses. We have time for this? I guess we'll just keep going. Huh? Okay. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, and we acquire until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. I love verse 8. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So the first similarity we see with between God's has said and what David did, he God lavishes his has said, his grace on us. And look at verse three. It says, Christ blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He made us rich. Not rich in this world necessarily, rich spiritually. Think of the rich spiritual blessings that Christ has given you. He's given you, we can think about uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But let me point you to one scripture that Chuck Moore really liked. It's in Hebrews. If you've never studied Hebrews, it's a fantastic book to study. But Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Let me just read it for you. It says, the writer of the Hebrews says, Speaking of Christ, says, for by a single offering, he, Christ, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Think about that. He has already perfected for all time those who he is sanctifying, those who he is perfecting in this life, which is what sanctification is, for those he is Progressing in the likeness of Christ in this life, he has already perfected. Isn't that amazing? So from a spiritual perspective, every believer is already perfect. Now, is that being made rich in a spiritual sense? <laughs> yeah. He has made us rich. Verse 3. Look at verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us, not us him. And unlike David, who chose to be nice to Mephibosheth 20 years after he made the promise, David chose, I mean, God chose us, not only before we were born, before the world was even created. This was God's plan for us, to pour, to lavish his grace upon us. In verse 4b, it says he considered us holy and blameless. And in verse 7, it says we have through him redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. That's reconciliation. Is this not? He's reconciled us. I love the descriptions that the Paul uses in Romans to describe us before we were in Christ. He says we were helpless in chapter 5, kind of like Mephibosheth. We're helpless. But we're a lot worse than that. Because in chapter 5 he says, we were also sinners. We were not hiding from the king. We were in open rebellion with the king. And not only that, he says we were not potential enemies. In Romans 5, Paul says we were enemies. And yet God reconciled us and considered us holy and blameless. Amazing, is it not? 
verse 5, it says he, re, he predestined us for adoption. He didn't treat us like a prince. He made us a prince. He adopted us into his family. And we got to eat at his table today, didn't we? Yeah. And then verses 11 through 14, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So he's given us an inheritance, hasn't he? But unlike Mephibosheth, it's an eternal inheritance. In fact, Mephibosheth lost half his property to Zeba as a result of a lie that Zeba told about him. But our inheritance is forever, so much so that God says, I'll give you a guarantee to show it. I'll give you the Holy Spirit now as a guarantee of the inheritance that we're all going to receive. It sounds a little bit like uh, the Hesed David showed Mephibosheth, doesn't it? But it's a lot greater. It's greater. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. This will, I was going to say this is going to be the last time I'll ask you to flip around, but it may not be. You never know, right? So uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Now we might as well start the verse 1. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. What did, what did Mephibosheth call himself when he humbled himself before David? Why would you be so kind to a dead dog like me? Well, guess what? We didn't call ourselves a dead dog. We were a dead dog. Right? We were dead in our trespasses. Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated, with, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And in the very familiar passage, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Verses 8 and 9 are familiar, right? We're saved by grace. It's a gift. It's a free gift from God that we don't earn, and it comes to us through, through faith in his son Jesus. But I want you to focus on verse 7. So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. I love this word, immeasurable. You know, I'm an engineer. What does that mean? Infinite. You can't measure it. You cannot measure the depth or the size of God's has said. 
the New American Standard Bible used. Some of you have that Bible. What words used? Do you have it? Huh? Surpassing riches. So you tell me how big the rich is. God's more. You describe the biggest amount of grace you could ever imagine. God surpasses it. It's more. It's the same concept, right? The NIV uses the word incomparable. So what I'm trying to do with you right now, which is compare the, the grace of David to Mephibosheth to God's grace, is impossible. It's incomparable. God's grace is, in a word, amazing. So earlier we asked, what did David do and what did Mephibosheth do? Let me close by just asking, what should we do? So if there's anybody here uh, who hasn't accepted the free gift of God, now's a great time to do it. He's offering this grace as a free gift. All you have to do is humble yourself before your king and accept the gift. There's no reason to be hiding anymore in Lodabar. If you've already done that and you're a child of the king already, then... I think the question is uh, that I would have for you is would you join me in proclaiming the amazement of God's grace? You know, I was going to skip this chapter when I taught uh, the, the boys at Miracle Farm because it was boring. But as I study it, you know, um, it might have been the most important story of David's life. Because it certainly is the most important story of my life. God's grace to us. So when I, as soon as I step down, we're going to sing a song. I think, David, if you're willing, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's a song written by Stuart Townend. Um, and it talks about the last burning question I have about God's grace. And that is why. Why? You know, we can kind of rationalize our way around why David did what he did. If we really try to rationalize it, we could put ourselves in David's place and say, I would have done the same thing. I mean, David, uh, I mean, he didn't do it right away. It took a little time for it to come to David's remembrance. David, to some degree, gave Mephibosheth out of his uh, abundance. It did cost him a lot. He could feed a couple more people at his table. Wasn't that big a deal? And Mephibosheth wasn't actively David's enemy, so it's not like he brought an enemy who was going to really harm him into the, into the palace, did he? I mean, if we're really callous, we could look at that and go, yeah, I would have done that. Okay, that's good, David. But I could do that. I would have done that. But somebody explain to me why God did what he did. You know, that's the burning question is why. And the author of this hymn answers it in the last verse of this song. So uh, pay attention. See if you agree. Okay? Thank you. Let's pray before I uh, step down. Father, as we uh, stand, <clears throat> stand in amazement of your grace, I do. How I ever could think it was boring, I don't know.
We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.